Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Robert Mazza, and today we're going to discuss Conflict Mediation in the Arab World, published by Syracuse University Press in 2023. Edited by Ibrahim Prayahat and Isaac Svensson. Today my guests are Isaac himself and one of the authors of this edited volume, Professor Laurie Nathan. The Middle East and North Africa region has been plagued with civil wars, international intervention, and increasing militarizations, making it one of the most war-affected areas in the world today. Despite numerous mediation processes and initiatives for conflict resolution, most have failed to transform conflicts from war to peace. Seeking to learn from these past efforts and apply new research, the editors present the first comprehensive approach in mediation in the Arab world, taking on cases from Yemen to Sudan, from Qatar to Palestine, Syria, and beyond. So this book, Conflict Mediation in the Arab World, focuses on mediation at three different levels of analysis, between countries, between governments and armed actors, inside single countries, and between different internal communities. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Isaac and Lori, welcome. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Happy to be talking with you today. So to start with, can you tell us something about yourselves and the origins of the book? So uh, I'm a professor at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University. So I'm a peace researcher, been involved in peace research for almost three decades. And the origins of the book is basically a meeting that, an informal track two meeting that Ibrahim Fayat, the editor of the book, and me, uh, we met in Vienna in 2018, uh, where we identified the need for a book on mediation specializing on the Arab world. And we saw that there was a need to bring mediation scholars into conversation with area specialists and those specializing on the conflicts, the many conflicts in the Arab world. And that what was set out to do. And, and now we see the, the final product. Right. I'm Laurie Nathan. I'm a South African. I was involved as a negotiator in South Africa's transition from apartheid to a constitutional democracy and subsequently headed a center for conflict resolution in Cape Town. I ended up as a practitioner mediating with the African Union at the United Nations, uh, including with the African Union on the Darfur crisis 2005-2006. I'm currently professor of the practice of mediation at the University of Notre Dame in the US. I have a deep passion for mediation as both a scholar and a practitioner. And I've written on mediation in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
as well as in relation to the Syria and Yemen mediations. And it was on the strength of that that Gisak invited me to participate in this project. So in the opening pages, you make the argument that much has been written about conflicts in the region, but little attention has been paid to the attempts to resolve them. Can I ask you why? I think this is the case in in the, when we talk about armed conflicts more generally, that there is a, a tendency to focus on conflicts and the origins of conflict. And there is a bit of a lack of attention to efforts out to resolve conflict or trying to transform conflict. And this is in particular for the Arab world, where we see an attention that has been focused on looking at the, the, the conflict, studying them, uh, uh, see the risk for escalation, uh, but not really studying and taking seriously the, the peacemaking and the conflict yeah. resolution efforts that there have been. Uh, and we try to address that through this book and looking at the different conflicts as they occur in, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, in the Gulf, States in Israel, Palestine, and so forth, with a focus on conflict resolution and the different, and and especially then on on mediation and mediation practices. You speak about mediation, and actually earlier we were just uh, while preparing for the podcast recording, we we're talking about the question of mediation and negotiation. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about the difference between these two terms. So can you tell us about mediation, its meanings, and how to research this particular topic? When, when parties in conflict, in serious conflict, in armed conflict, believe that they are un unable to win, that they are un unable to defeat their opponent militarily, and are interested in the possibility of a negotiated settlement, they need the support of a third party very often, and the third party is the mediator. The conflict parties are the negotiating parties. They need a third party mediator because the level of mistrust and hatred and enmity between them is so intense that they are unable to have a viable, constructive dialogue and negotiation on their own. There are some rare exceptions, but almost always conflict parties that have used large-scale violence against each other, need the support of the third party. And the third party could be a state, United States, Qatar, currently in the Gaza crisis. It could be an organization, multilateral, European Union, African Union, United Nations. It could be a private sector organization. It could be a faith-based organization. And some of those third party mediators are professional mediators. They are deeply familiar with the skills and expertise associated with mediation, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are diplomatic actors that are relying on their diplomatic connections without necessarily having expertise in mediation. And it's important to to recognize, I think, that uh, mediators have different motives for why they intervene, and this is something that we discuss throughout the book. And it's important to not come with a naive understanding of mediation because mediators by themselves come with different motivations for engagement. 
that that is partly altruistic. They want to contribute to a change of the situation to bring more peaceful development, but it's also to advance particular interests that they may have, especially when we talk about state uh, mediators that are quite prevalent in this region. We can see that these types of mediators uh, do have a, a particular interest that they try to advance through the mediation process. Yeah, as Laurie mentioned earlier, obviously thinking about the current situation, Qatar comes really immediately to our in front of our eyes. And, and certainly, as you mentioned, they too have their own interest, which we cannot unpack here, but they're certainly uh, very important for any analyst to look at. Now, let's go back to the book. So the book is divided into three parts. And the first part is about trajectories and challenges of mediation in the Arab world. Can you give us just a brief sense of both the trajectories and the challenges? Well, in this part of the book, we try to sort of look at the larger patterns of um, conflicts and conflict resolution in particular and look at the different challenges that is facing actors that are involved in the in the region. And it's focusing on the dynamics, particularly of, of peace agreements. And one of the, the key interesting paradox, so to say, is that, that uh, the Arab world have a lack of peace agreement. It stands out as uh, underutilization of comprehensive peace agreements. I mean, there have been several peace negotiations and a lot of mediation efforts. We have seen peace uh, agreements of various sorts, ceasefires agreements, and Israel-Palestine, of course, is uh, quite prevalent in terms of, the, of these types of uh, agreements. But we see a lack of comprehensive settlement. And this is something that is discussed in the chapter by, by Peter Wallenstein and, and uh, Stina Hergblad where they make a very interesting comparison between the African region and uh, the, the Arab world, uh, both of which have interesting trajectories in terms of, of foreign involvement, the history of colonialism, sort of um, resource curse, uh, underdevelopment and, and, and authoritarian uh, uh, countries, uh, so they have a lot of similarities, but a difference in terms of their trajectory of, of peacemaking. Uh, then we have uh, Laurie Nathan's great chapter, and, and I think he will mention a few words on, on this, on the, on the important role of, of mandates in mediation, which is a key key area of research, of course. Uh, we also have Mohammed Abu Nimer who's doing a, a very interesting chapter on, on national dialogues and the role of national dialogues that has been used. And national dialogues is something that sometimes entails mediation and sometimes is a processes without a sort of a, a, a formal mediator in a, in a normal sense. And it discusses the way in these, how these has evolved and the different um, trajectories. And I really want to ask a little bit about the chapters that you mentioned, for instance, uh, you know, chapter one by Peter Wallenstein, and Stina Ugblad, they ask a very interesting and very important question. Why have there been relatively few peace agreements in the Middle East in the past 50 years or so compared, for instance, to uh, 
Africa, or I, I was even thinking about Latin America, yeah. for instance, is there a reason why? Well, they they, they do discuss various uh, hypotheses that could explain this, uh, and uh, I think uh, their aspiration is not to give a comprehensive answer, but rather uh, suggest a few potential explanations. Uh, they point to historical legacies uh, in this uh, region, especially the legacy of the Ottoman Empire and you know, the, the, what comes with that in terms of the um, sort of a certain political culture in terms of elitism and a lack of transparency and that this could influence the, the type of the trajectory of peacemaking. Uh, they also point to the lack of institutions. I think that is a very important point. I mean, in in other world regions, we see international organizations, regional organization, African Union uh, in, in, in Africa, in ASEAN, in Asia, in Europe, of course, European Union and so forth. So we see regional collaboration and institutionalization that have helped to create the basis for me. Uh, in, in this region, we see a lack of that, and, and that I think is a, a part of the explanation. I, I just want to add something about, at least raise a question about the extent to which Arab culture, Arab cultures in the plural, have a different style of addressing conflict, negotiations, and resolution. I experienced that when I was mediating on, on the Darfur case, which is an African case, but has an African-Arab uh, flavor to it. And there was a formal negotiation that was mediated by the African Union with the Darfur rebels on the one side and government of Sudan on the other. But at the same time, we learned subsequently, at the same time, there was a informal negotiation that was going on, like in a parallel universe, with an entirely different approach to negotiation. Whereas our approach was a Western approach, meaning formal, at the table, suits and ties, legal text, signed agreements. The parallel process was much more informal, much more fluid. And aside from our volume, Alex Duval, who's a fantastic Africanist scholar, wrote a really brilliant paper saying there was a different culture in the African-Arab world of Darfur and Sudan an entirely different approach to mediation and negotiation, and theirs was the real one. Ours was simply a facade. Theirs failed as ours failed, but theirs was the real effort. And the idea was to reach a power-sharing informal agreement among elites that would be fluid and not put in writing and not fixed in time, that evolves over time as power shifts. So that it may be that we are looking through the wrong lens when we pose the question, why no formal agreement? Well, one wonders whether, you know, Western idea of mediations can effectively be relevant in a different context, whether it's Africa or the Arab world, because we in the West, we may not fully understand uh, internal dynamics with their own cultures, and we probably pretend to use our own criteria without understanding how dialogue, negotiations, and even the idea of mediation may work in a different context. So I, I think you raised a very, very important point here. 
And I think it's, I would, I would underscore the fact that it's hugely important in practice and under-researched in the academic world. We are not taking culture seriously enough. And by culture, I mean both practice, how we do dialogue, negotiations, mediation, and at the kind of ontological or cosmological level, how do we in different communities understand the concept of compromise, of reconciliation, of justice, of authority, etc. And the mediation community, whether the AU or the EU or the UN, assume that they are culture-free or culture-universal. So we don't have to bother about culture. We don't have to adapt to different cultures. And we see culture because we are modern and secular and cosmopolitan. We think we don't have culture and that culture is slightly backward and traditional. Um, those are deep fallacies that I, I think impair the efficacy of mediation practice very often. It's a very interesting to... uh, uh, story. A few years back, uh, as I was in East Jerusalem, uh, one of the uh, Supreme Court judges in Israel uh, issuing a decree related to a housing problem, she said that in the end, Arabs uh, you know, should drop this idea of uh, remembering long-term history. And that was very interesting because you could see the difference of, you know, one culture that valued the history, but also, you know, not really looking back long-term, where obviously for the Arab population, even that long-term history is part of a culture and identity. Uh, again, I, I don't want to hijack here because we are talking about uh, the book, but I thought it was very interesting uh, what you're mentioning, uh, you know, in relation to culture. Thank you. So I, I think that uh, it's important to understand that, and recognize that mediation is universal. And that the, that the, the practice of bringing parties together in situations of conflict and tension occur in all conflicts that occur throughout time. And that practice, of course, is a universal practice, but the way it has manifested itself is very, very different, right? And uh, I think in, in the book, we try to, to highlight that. And I just want to point to that, that, for instance, the, the great chapter on, on the Omani uh, mediation by El Hamangush is, is a very interesting chapter that looks at the particularities of, of Omani mediation, uh, which, uh, as, as Laurie uh, points out, I mean, works much more informally, uh, uses other types of, of, of practices that are locally anchored and, and culturally adapted. And to some extent, uh, it's more successful, you can say. Uh, and that's a very interesting example. I think also the the uh, the chapter that we have on the, the Shia-Sunni mediation practices in Iraq is an interesting example of this because this was done uh, not through primarily through formal negotiation processes, but more informal practices. So you can see how this is sort of uh, an important uh, an important aspect. Laurie, I want to ask about your chapter. Um, you talk about the mandate that govern international mediation. Can you speak briefly about this concept in relation to mandates specifically issued by the United Nations? The point of departure here is to understand that mediators are not free agents. Mediators are not at liberty to take positions, to promote stances, to encourage solutions as they see fit. 
there is a principal-agent relationship between mediators that are appointed by states or by multilateral organizations, including the UN. So mediators get their marching orders from their bosses. And in the case of the UN, the boss is either the secretary general who appoints a special envoy or special representative, or the boss is the UN Security Council. When the UN Security Council passes a resolution on a particular conflict, everything that the council says in that resolution is binding on the mediator. The council would like its position to be binding also on the conflict parties, of course, but it's certainly binding on the mediator. And the mandates therefore provide a set of prescriptions that the mediator is obliged to adhere to, and the mandate circumscribes what is possible in terms of an outcome. Now, sometimes the UN Security Council issues resolutions, Yemen being a good example, where the mandate is not conducive to mediation. The critical UN Security Council mandate on Yemen basically declared a winner and a loser. It declared the government of Hadi to be the legitimate government, which should be reestablished, and called on the Houthi to surrender the territory, including the capital, which they had seized through force. Now, that position was unquestionably correct from a democratic perspective, but from a mediator's perspective, it was an impossible mandate. What, on what basis would the Houthi agree to mediation that would lead to their political defeat when they had achieved a military victory on the field? So the, that was an example of where the mandate foreclosed the possibility of dynamic effective mediation. I want to move to part two of the book, mediation in or by Arab countries. Now, this part has nine chapters. Therefore, I would like to focus mostly on Syria and Palestine for the sake of time and also because I believe without taking away from all of the countries, but given the current historical context, they are certainly uh, very relevant as we speak today. Uh, can we start with a chapter by William Sartman on the United Nations mediation in Syria? My question would be, what did go wrong? I'll, I'll kick off with, a, with an initial response. Um, so William Sartman is most famous in terms of his theoretical developments for the idea of conflict rightness. And he argues, in essence, that conflicts are right for resolution through negotiations at some times, but not others. So the question that he raises then is, under what circumstances are conflicts ripe for resolution through negotiations? And the answer, in short, is the parties must perceive a mutually hurting stalemate. Now, that's not a single condition. That's more than one condition. In other words, the parties, all of them, must believe there's a stalemate in the sense that none of them can win militarily. And it must be hurting because it's possible to have a comfortable stalemate. That idea recognizes that there are costs entailed in a negotiated agreement because all negotiated agreements require compromise on important values and interests. So the parties are weighing up the respective costs and benefits of continued fighting versus 
the costs and benefits of a negotiated settlement. Where a party is strong and believes it's going to win, why would it go to the table, says Zeitlin, and settle for a draw and make a whole lot of painful compromises? It won't. It will keep fighting. And it will seek to crush its enemy. I think that theory explains brilliantly both the cases of Palestine-Israel and Syria. It explains why we've had no resolution through mediated negotiations, because in both cases, the asymmetry of power led the stronger, militarily stronger party to believe correctly that it could win. And for that reason, mediation had no traction. I think this is a, a great analysis, and I agree fully that, that the lack of ripeness, if we look at Syria, is one of the, the the key explanations for the failure of mediation, why it went wrong. Basically, that the 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 forties at different times throughout this this long conflict had different expectations of success, and it shifted over time. So, in the beginning of the conflict, to simplify the 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 opposition was in the belief, partly because of this external support that they received and the signal that they received, that they could gain uh, power, that they could achieve their maximalist goals. Uh, and through the the, the, the shift of, of the tables and through the Russian intervention and through a shift in, in, in the alignment of other external actors, we saw a change, of power, change in power dynamics in which the government expected to, to, to win and, and be able to achieve its aspirations. So at no point in, in, in the process, really, the parties were stuck in a stalemate where both sides felt that they, they, they could not achieve their aspirations. Uh, moreover, I would also add in, in, in Saltman's um chapter and, and this links back to the, the question of mandate which Laurie had already talked about uh, and the Sartman highlights the, the the problem when you have a situation where um, the mandating organization provides a mandate for the, the individual mediators but do not back up that mandate with resources and sufficient support and this is one of the explanations as well, that we cannot see a result of the the, the, the different special envoys that have been acting in the, the Syrian conflict. They have had a mandate to mediate, but the ones that gave them this mandate in the UN Security Council did not provide the support for the individual uh, uh, mediators. Instead, uh, Russia started an own separate process a rival process. Uh, and for instance, Stefan and Restura, one of the mediators, had to appeal to the UN Security Council to back up its own process, which they did not. And, and to add further on, on Isaac's last point, the first mediator for Syria, the first UN mediator, Kafi Annan, and the second mediator for Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, both resigned because they didn't have a sufficiently unified principle. So the mandating authority, as Isaac has just said, was itself divided. And without that political leverage, the mediator was not able to put pressure.
pressure on the conflict parties. I want to add, in addition, the important point from Zeitman's theory that mutually hurting stalemate is not objective, meaning it doesn't matter what you and I think objectively. We may look at a crisis and say, this is clearly a mutually hurting stalemate. What matters is how the parties themselves perceive the situation. And there's very interesting research in this book and elsewhere that indicates the extent to which conflict parties are often divided. They are having an internal debate between hardliners and moderates on whether to go to the table or not. And to complicate matters further, we can't discount the relevance of emotion. The parties are not playing chess. They're not sitting in a cool, calculated um, environment where they're moving uh, non-living pieces across a chessboard. They are involved in the blood and guts of killing and being killed. And the emotions affect their ability to perceive their opponent as a potential cooperative partner in a negotiation process. So Zeitman says, in addition to a mutually hurting stalemate, we need the parties to perceive negotiations as a viable way out of their conflict. And they might not do that, even in a hurting stalemate, because of the level of hatred and enmity. I must say that reading you know, this chapter, I felt that this theory was almost a living theory looking at uh, the current situation in Gaza and in Israel, where all of these principles are coming to life, essentially. And you can see really the, the question of the asymmetry and also the lack of uh, interest in sitting around the table and having a mediator in the middle. Uh, and so that was fascinating to see how this theory Actually, it's real and can be used in order to assess and analyze the current situation. Now, again, I, I want to move forward because we have a few more questions. And I, I want to ask about the chapters by Magnus uh, Lundgren, uh, which is basically the follow-up of the situation in Syria. And he looks uh, at the period between 2016 and 2019. The discussion is on the intra-Syrian consultation in Geneva and then in Astana. So despite the attempts, Syria seems to be mediation resistance. That, that was my idea. Why? I think the, we, we can tie this also back to one question about the man, mandate. And the, the problem here that uh, Magnus Lundgren discussing in his chapter uh, is analyzing the kind of the, the maximalist elements in in the the un mandates where it sort of basically um stipulates a regime change in damascus not not uh sort of verbatim but that's the basic essence of, of what is is sort of in 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 the un the backbone of the the, the premise i would say on the whole uh, mediation effort so it's it's sort of premised on the idea of a regime change in in Damascus on the change in in one other side, which did not align with the with the situation. Maybe in the beginning of the of the conflict, but very soon as the conflict developed, it, it did not sort of align. So we had a discrepancy between the mandate and the premise of the mediation, the way it was shaped, and the realities on the ground. 
And this also comes back to the question of rightness, which is this kind of idea around sort of alignment between the, the realities on the ground, uh, the perceptions of the parties, and the timing of the mediation effort. You know, initially, the, the Syrian rebels did not perceive a hurting stalemate because they thought they were going to win. They, they, they were deluded with hindsight in believing that the Obama administration was going to come to their rescue and pile it on. And that turned out not to be the case. When it became evident to the rebels that they were losing, the emotional considerations were really important. And I raised the anecdote um, to supplement what's in the book by saying that I had an opportunity to meet with rebel leaders who were outside the country in exile um, to plot the way forward. And I put to them what I thought would be controversial which was that you are losing, you need to go to the table. And they did not dispute that. They didn't dispute that. They accepted that there was no debate. It wasn't controversial. And then I said, you have to do a deal with Assad. You're going to have to share power with us, with Assad, and he's going to be the dominant partner because he's winning, if not one. And they couldn't even talk about it. They couldn't talk about it. It was emotionally too intense, too painful. After the slaughter and the deployment of chemical weapons, it was emotionally too painful. And they were stuck where they were, even though they accepted objectively that they had lost and would not ever win, they couldn't contemplate the idea of a compromise and a deal which would leave Assad in power. So it was an example of how potent the visceral emotions are in conflict. So I want to move forward, and uh, I really want to talk about now the question of... Uh... Palestine. So Hamas today has become a household name around the world. And the chapter by Kalsendorf and Kovacs looks at the Hamas-Fatah relations from 2007, which was the year of a civil war between the two, to 2019. Can we walk the steps that brought to the split and outbreak of violence between the two? Uh, the focus of this chapter is not so much on the split, I would say, actually, because uh, that has been researched quite a lot and uh, the relationship. But but what, what this chapter tried to, to look at, and I think that's really fascinating in the sort of forgotten history in a sense, is those attempts to bring uh, the two main parties in, in the Palestine, on the Palestine side together. Right? So the negotiation between Fatah and Hamas. And... Um, in their chapter, they identify six different uh, mediated efforts, different agreements that are actually reached between the parties between 2007 seven and up to 2019. None of the agreements were able to mend sustainably the relationships. And I think this is really important to take into account because this is a background context in order to understand what is happening now, the lack of unity between the, the, the Palestinian factions uh, that has also helped to shape uh, um, an increased uh, militarization, an increased uh, um, extremism in a sense on, on the Hamas side and parts of the uh, Hamas uh, parts. Of the Hamas organization. Uh, 
So I think this is really important to 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 bear in mind. Now, what they do in their chapter is that they they compare the different efforts. They try to understand what is <clears throat> what was done in terms of the content of these types of agreement. Uh, why did they not actually materialize? And they bring this into a discussion with with the whole question about implementation of peace agreement. We, we have a lot of research on, and they show that, for instance, the way the the the, the implementation was manage the sequencing of the different aspect of the, the process or implementation can help to explain why these processes faltered. And we know this from conflict resolution more broadly, that sequencing in implementation is a, is a key, key aspect. And they bring that into the analysis, which I think is really fascinating. So just two, two other factors that I think are relevant here. The hatred between Fatah and Hamas is a religious secular tension. I worked in Palestine with the Palestinian Authority on security sector reform in 2005 and 2007, at which point the government of national unity between Fatah and Hamas was still in place and it was shortly thereafter to break. My colleagues who were in the Palestinian Authority were all Fatah. They absolutely despised Hamas. On they viewed Hamas as religious extremists that held positions antithetical to the liberal, secular, modern orientation of Fatah. So that was a key factor that that led to the split and has inhibited any kind of reconciliation. But it's also worth adding that the U.S. had an agenda here. It was deeply involved in the fighting between Fatah and Hamas. The US agenda was to arm and train and equip Fatah to crush Hamas. That was the agenda. And it failed. Hamas prevailed. But the US historically was involved in trying to sow division, defeat Hamas. So I think it's also important to bring into the equation here. Yeah, which is basically my next question, because uh... There have been a series of agreements between Fatah and Hamas. Some brought positive outcomes, but some did not. And obviously, the role of the U.S. and also the role of Israel should be taken into account. And I wondered, uh, if, you know, if I can pick your brain about all of this and if you have views about the role of these external factors in mediations between, uh, in the role of mediations between Fatah and Hamas. Uh, in, in these negotiations, Egypt play a, a particular role. Saudi Arabia also was an important actor in these types of uh, efforts. I think uh, when it comes to implementation of agreements, though, it's it, it, the, the, the key point is not really to look at the third parties in terms of how, sort of looking at the, the, the role in, in but, but rather the lack of implementation on, on the conflict actors themselves that failed to live up to the commitments that that they they did. And I think it goes back to what Laurie said about the, the deep, deep division that is between these two organizations that stand for two very different visions of Palestinian people. You know, it's it's worth emphasizing in a more general way a point two points that Isaac has just made now. At a general level, the one general point is we need to remember at all times that our obsession with mediation skews our perspective. 
the dominant actors are never the mediators. The dominant actors are always the conflict parties. What's going on between and within them is way more important than anything the mediator is doing. And the second general point is that the parties do not reach agreement genuinely and abide by the agreement genuinely. If they are not sincere about it, they often sign or agree to what we could call spurious agreements, partly because they're under pressure from third parties, including mediators, and partly because they don't want to be perceived to be the spoiler, the bad guy on the block. So they appear to agree, whereas in fact they've not agreed at all. And that's why those agreements unravel. They were never genuine agreements in the first place. I want to ask briefly about uh, the last chapter of part two before the concluding questions, uh, because I think it's very important in the current historical context. So Ghassan Khatib looks at American mediation in the Israel-Palestine conflict. And the U.S. have been the third party, at least since the 1990s, relying mostly on their leverage as a superpower. Can you give us a sense of the analysis of the American mediation event? This goes back to the question of biased mediation, which I think is a really important uh, discussion in, in mediation. Uh, and we need a nuanced understanding about biased mediation because sometimes mediators that have ties to the parties can play an important role. I come from a part of the world, the Scandinavian countries that sort of tried to, have tried in, in different ways to act as, as mediators in different conflicts uh, and have a tradition of being unbiased and, and seeking to be unbiased and, and neutral in the conflict that they, they work in. And they have a particular role to, to play as well. But uh, when it comes to forging agreements and deep compromises, then we often need mediators that can deliver their side and push parties to come to an agreement. Uh, the U.S. have a particular role to play and has had that historically because of their special relationship with one side, with Israel. And it's important to recognize that the Palestinian side have sought American involvement as well that they have seen that the only one that can guarantee uh, you, Israel, to, to become at the table, to make those concessions that are necessary and to live up to those uh, concessions would be the, the, the U.S. Uh, Khatib's uh, chapter problematizes and shows the problems that uh, that is involved in American mediation efforts and there are several uh, and there's a lot that could be said about this it's it's a very complicated material and the uh, but it's important to recognize that the, there is a role for those that have ties to the parties i i agree with the theoretical perspective offered by isaac but one of the problems here is that the us has simply not applied the leverage it has against israel the Palestinian Authority is a captive party in a way where the U.S. could apply leverage on Israel by making its military, financial and political support conditional on 
not a final outcome, but on a serious effort by the Israeli government to negotiate a final outcome. And it hasn't applied that leverage. So, yes, that's correct. Factually, Fatah, Palestinian Authority, have had the hope that the U.S. as the mediator would apply that leverage. Hamas, I must say, has never wanted the U.S. to be the mediator. But this has been the need and desire of Fatah. The U.S. hasn't delivered. The U.S. Clinton at Camp David, for example, presented proposals to Arafat, which he, Clinton, had checked with Ehud Barak, the Israeli prime minister, beforehand, but hadn't checked with Arafat. In a way, the, the one-sidedness was so strong at Camp David that Arafat and his team felt besieged by a mediator too closely aligned with the enemy of the PLO. So if you're the biased mediator, you have to play this with more finesse, I think, with more political astuteness than the U.S. has to date. What you said is very interesting because obviously the narratives of those uh, meetings you know, came out very differently and uh, often the blame is being put on Arafat, but obviously the documents tell us a different story. So I have a couple more questions and I want to look at the last part. Part three is called local level mediations in the Arab world. And the authors look at Algeria, Iraq, and Somalia. Could you give us a sense of what local level mediation is and how does it work? That comes back to the question that the discussion we had earlier as well about the sort of culturally anchored, sort of um, locally contextualized mediation. Uh, and I think one of the findings that, that come across when we look at the, the, the book and the evidence that we present is that the external driven mediation efforts uh, have been problematic and had problematic in outcomes and where we see some success and movements is more on the local level. So this is an interesting uh, interesting development and I think that's uh, something an interesting finding that here is where we can find some some improvements in the more informal and a more local level mediation efforts. Uh, that doesn't exclude external involvement. Uh, we can see different combinations with externals and, and local levels involvement. And I, that, I think, is also a promising avenue for the future. I need to leave the conversation now, but I, I uh, hope that you all get the chance to to read this book. Uh, I think it's a, a great, uh, I'm a bit biased, but it, it's a great contribution to the field, I think. Thank you so much. Thank you, Isaac. So I'm going to keep the last questions for Laurie. So mediation seems to be a failing method in the Arab world. Can you draw some conclusions and perhaps speculate what is needed to change this trend? Mm. Look, mediation is, as um, Isaac said earlier, it's universal. It's not a Western thing. I mean, you can look at the Old Testament and other ancient texts and you will see there's a third party mediator. So we kind of imagine that this is a new Western liberal United Nations thing. It's not. In your own family, in your own neighborhood, in your own city, whoever you are listening to this podcast, there are mediators, third parties that help parties in conflict resolve their, their differences. My sense is that there needs to be more emphasis placed on Arab 
mediators as opposed to non-Arab mediators. Because I think cultural affinity between party leaders and mediators is very important. And without mentioning names, I think the UN Secretary General often appoints uh, as his special envoys or special representatives to the Middle East, um, senior figures who are not culturally recognized in the region. They don't speak Arabic. They don't understand Arabic culture and, and customs. I think that's a mistake. I think it matters who the mediator is and how he or she resonates linguistically with the parties. When we, when the African Union did the mediation in Darfur, the rebels spoke Arabic. Most of the mediators didn't. And so we had to have a mediation through simultaneous translation, which is outrageously inappropriate, obviously. But we're not attentive enough to culture. I'm not suggesting that that's going to be the major breakthrough for mediation in, in the Arab world. But I think it's one of the factors that ought to be taken more seriously, the cultural identity of the mediator. So these were Isaac Svensson, who already led the conversation, and Lori Nathan. Lori, thank you so much. Roberto, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for doing this.